I had thought that we would get through Revelation 19 today, but I must admit that I had underestimated that chapter. When I really got into it and sat down and I saw what was going on, I I, uh, quickly realized that it would not satisfy me to do it in one session for my own sake. And I hope uh, that would be uh, fair terms for the way uh, we are reading this book together. Uh, I I do say that I read this for my satisfaction, uh, and then I hope it is meaningful to you, (laughs) to you too, and I am certainly learning stuff. Now, let's just go back to a couple of the slides we had in the previous handout that I have uh, reproduced here for today. Uh, from one is from a book on the French Revolution by uh, by a person who is considered one of the main authorities on the French Revolution, uh, and then there is another a statement from my shopworn book, uh, Lord Acton's book Essays on Freedom and Power that I just would like to mention very quickly. Here is what the revolutionaries did when they were going to introduce a higher degree of freedom at the time of the French Revolution. And we have said that, that the French Revolution in some ways is an analogy for the message in the book of Revelation where the state turns on the church, where the state turns on religion, where the political power decides that we can do without religion. It has really only done damage. So let's get rid of it. That became more and more the, the, the sort of a tendency in the French Revolution. And then, and then of course... One had to retreat after a while, but listen to this statement first. While debating the issue of privacy of correspondence, you know, should you, should you have a right of privacy, as it were, while debating the issue of privacy of correspondence, deputies of all representatives firmly maintained that one could not govern in time of war and revolution as in time of peace. In other words, that the rights they were proposing to grant to all citizens depended on circumstances. This was to become the doctrine of the revolutionary uh, government. Now, that's that's, uh, in some ways a a, a rather timeless sort of window on, on, on human reality, isn't it? That there are certain basic rights, certain basic principles, but there are times when you suspend them. Well, there are times when you allow expediency to, uh, to overrule principle, you might say. And this sort of giveaway of the French Revolution, that there was a consensus for doing that, to sort of suspend that and, 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 and uh, what should I say? Uh, instead of the rule of law, what do you have then? You have uh, uh, emergency powers or, or whatever. And of course... On that principle, on that trajectory, it disintegrates. You know, it doesn't work. Now, I would say that that in the U.S. Uh, U.S. Uh, revolution, uh, to uh, to an extent, the U.S. did not have a revolution. They had a, a war of independence, so it was less of a revolutionary ferment. But the thinking of the founding fathers in the U.S. were much more principled than the thinking of the revolutionaries in France. Now, maybe thinking in today's society, in, our 20th, in the 20th century and 21st century, have been much more inclined towards sentiments that you have in the French Revolution, that there are times when you, without losing sleep, 
suspend these principles. You do not fall back on the rule of law to the same extent that you thought you might. And so this, this uh, comment on the French Revolution is just food for thought. Here is from Lord Acton. This is a very a, a, a statement we could talk more about because we could have explored each of the people he, he mentioned here, but it is the bottom line that should interest us. <clears throat> so here they are, heading into the French Revolution and replacing religious power or sort of doing away with religious power to have state power only, to have no, to make to make uh, state power the religion, you might say, which was unprecedented in, uh, it's almost unprecedented in history, even though there have, been, there have been power projects that have, you know, not have just sort of tweaked religion to, 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 to not play much of a role. But, um, but the French Revolution is really quite an exceptional thing there, and, and of course we will know that it is a forerunner of... of uh, of the notions of state power that you eventually had in, in, in the Soviet Union and in, in, in communist China. Here is what he says. Yet all these factions of opinion were called liberal. Montesquieu, because he was an intelligent Tory, that's on the right side of the political spectrum. Voltaire, because he attacked the clergy. I think Voltaire was quite a shallow character, but... I need to have a place to say that. I don't get to say it often enough. (laughs) (coughs) Who is the deep character of that period? The deep character of that period is an Englishman. His name is John Wesley. He is is a, a deep person. Anyway, Voltaire, because he attacked the clergy. Turgot, as a reformer. Rousseau, as a democrat. Diderot, as a free thinker. The one thing in common to them all is the disregard for liberty. Here are all these bold torchbearers for freedom, and none of them understand it. That's what that, that statement is saying. To understand freedom is not just something you do you know, with your left hand, and certainly not to understand the sort of biblical parameters for freedom. It's not something one does with one's left hand. Uh, so... Of course, it would have been interesting for us to, to discuss some of this, but, but we just, just have it there as a, as a seed thought and see what this, uh, this quite principled approach or very principled approach to the subject of freedom that you find in Lord Acton, what he says, and I just thought that might be stimulating to, for some of you who might look, want to look into that book. Now, how does it end? It doesn't last very long you know, the French Revolution. And uh, it is often in the sort of uh, the paradigm that says that there was a period in history from 538, uh, sort of a period of church and state, 538 to 1798, when uh, when, uh, one of the generals of Napoleon takes the Pope and puts him and locks him up, you know, takes him away and sort of puts the, the Roman Catholic Church under, under uh, house arrest, that that is kind of where, where the, the low point of church power is, you know, 
But the low point, uh, point of church power in, 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 in relation to the French Revolution is not when Napoleon comes on, this, on stage. Napoleon has, has great plans for the church. Napoleon knows that he needs the church. So Napoleon is really not the one that brings the church down as much as the revolutionaries did when they put, they put a movie actress or some say she was a prostitute and put her in there in that beautiful cathedral. At least some people think it is beautiful. I'm not even sure I do that <laughs> because I think of all the sacrifices people had to make to make the, the, the Notre Dame in, 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 in Paris. But anyway, they put her in there in the choir, you know, as the goddess of reason. You know, just at the time when they were losing all reason, you might say, the revolutionaries. It wasn't a very pretty sight, and it was, it was somewhat, you know, failing. So here is Napoleon, who knows history and knows symbols. And he, you can't see this very well. We probably should have dimmed the lights a little. But do you see Napoleon there? Here? There he is, and here is the Pope, and here is his wife, Josephine, I think. And, and you see how, they, how ostentatious it is. It is a, and and I, I think the, the, the painter has really, he was, he was court-appointed. This is as close as you get to photography in, in that time. And Napoleon, what did he do? Anyway, <laughs> in contrast to whom? In contrast to the person, the, the Charlemagne, was it, you know, 800, when, he, when the Pope showed up again to crown him emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. It was Roman Empire still, only that it was a Holy Roman Empire. You know, and then he was, that first emperor was crowned by the Pope, by the church. So church and state, they are sort of playing their roles. But Napoleon... He is not going to take that. <laughs> so he takes the crown and says, you know, the guy is there and he has to sit there and sort of swallow that huge camel when Napoleon puts the crown on his own head. <laughs> he, he wanted to say that the earthly power is not derived from religious power. But he restores the papacy to some extent. He sort of brings a little bit of parity into the paradigm again. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story. So it begins all over again, in a sense, although, although clearly there is much less, less uh, uh, church, uh, church power. Now, where is the church in the, uh, in, sort of, in the sort of power symbolism of America? Where is the church uh, in, in relation to your precedents? Just for the fun of it. Well, the tabloids, but, but when, when you have a president, a presidential inauguration, where is the church? Well, there is a Bible there, because that's sort of, the, to sort of establish uh, veracity. There is a sort of conscience, uh, you know, the presence of conscience that you do this in some ways before God. But who is the one who takes your oath of office? You do it to the oath of office to, to the Supreme Court. You know, and what does the church get to do in this? In this, well, there is somebody who gets to pray. Yes, and that has been Billy Graham, for me, hasn't it? Yeah. Who was the last one who prayed? It was Rick Warren who did the prayer last time. Okay. Well, 
there is, you know, quite a, there is a relationship here, but there is a, there is quite a self-conscious relationship in the U.S. about the, the, the separation of powers and especially about the, the role of, of uh, or, or the notion that, that the church, <coughs> that, that, that civil power is de- derived from religious power is not the way things are set up in the U.S. There, there, there is still the notion in, in this country that you need religion for civil society to survive. But you need it in people's hearts. You don't want to constitute it in, in, in sort of, you know, political terms. It is not translatable to, to political terms, yes. The relationship between church and government in the U.S. has been a rather curious one. And by that, I'll go back to the 1860s, where we had church both damning slavery and supporting slavery. And actually, I can't say from the beginning, I'm not that good of a historian, but the church has hesitated to critique government. It has hesitated to critique the elements of power, today the financial institutions, and the control that they are putting on the common people. The church is not, in the U.S., is not the supporter of the, church, of the people anymore. I think it's given up its role as church and is much more interested in power. Well, thank you for that comment. Uh, I'll just refer, uh, in the handout I gave you last time, uh, I did uh, do a couple of recommended readings, and <clears throat> two of the recommended readings uh, are, are from uh, two books written by uh, William Estep. William Estep uh, is, is deceased now. He was a professor of church history at the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in, in Dallas or in Fort Worth. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, or they are twin cities. He wrote a very wonderful book about the history of the Anabaptists, the Anabaptist story. It's there in, your, in the handout I gave you last time and toward the end of that handout, the Anabaptist story, because that shows the Anabaptist story is the part where, where from the point of view of religion, from the point of, point of view of religious reform, uh, uh, believers will not lean on the arm of the state. The Protestants, uh, other Protestants, the Protestants who sort of won and, and, and wrote the history. History is always written by the victors. And uh, the Lutheran Calvinist who, who uh, sort of prevailed and, and got to, to write that history, uh, they, the Reformation represents a change in relation to how power is configured, political power, but it does not envision separation of powers at all. But the Anabaptist paradigm is different in that respect, and, and the way he develops that in, in, that, in, in the Anabaptist story is interesting, very interesting. His first sort of exhibit there is one of the Anabaptist leaders, Felix Mantz, who on a, on a very cold January day in 1527, this is in the heyday of, of the Protestant Reformation, uh, just to compare Swingley and Calvin, Calvin burnt Servetus. We mentioned that last time, but on the, in the, on a very cold January day in 1527, Felix Muntz, one of the leading Anabaptists, he was drowned in the 
river Limmat in Zurich, uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. They, they tied him to a, to a log, and then they submerged him three times, you know, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then they held him under till he was gone. That's the Protestant, that's the, <coughs> that's the mainline Protestant Reformation. The other Protestant Reformation, the Anabaptists, of course, they, they did not think that the state could say anything. They could say something about civil disobedience, but they could not say anything about, about rules or, uh, against conscience, that you, you were free to follow your conscience, even if you were wrong. See, that's, that's, that's unique. William Estep, the Anabaptist story, and then another book that has not... I looked on Amazon.com to see if anyone had reviewed it on Amazon and given it some stars, because that's always nice. <clears throat> but nobody had done that. That book is called Revolution Within the Revolution, and it is the history of the First Amendment of, your, of the U.S. Constitution. How the rather secular politicians in the U.S., because they were not nearly as religious as some people in today, in religious people in America today, think that the Founding Fathers were really pious people. They were not nearly all that pious. They were more sort of deists, you know. They were not, they were not, uh, uh, they were not uh, uh, more than that. <laughs> that. And, and then some very principled Christians who came from the Anabaptist tradition, they got together and they worked out the, the separation clause between church and state. And, and William Eastup has, has uh, explained that very nicely in his book, the, uh, the Revolution Within the Revolution. Now, you really miss out on things because you don't live in Norway. <laughs> because in Norway, we had an William Eastup coming. I invited him to come and preach in our church in Oslo and invited all the other free churches in Norway, to, uh, in Oslo, to join us, to listen to him. We had a bit of a sort of sort of mini uh, ecumenical tete-a-tete with him. Unfortunately, he's deceased now. He was a very, very wonderful man. He told me that he had gone to, to conventions recently, the last 20, 30 years, Southern Baptist conventions, and left those conventions, the sort of general conference uh, meetings in the Southern Baptist context, and left those meetings weeping, because he felt that his church had completely walked away from its historical legacy on the separation of church and state. Just a wonderful man, so I'm just happy to pay tribute to him here for for his books. He has written other books too. But, um, okay, on to Revelation 19. After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power to our God, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Just sort of off the top of your head, at face value. Here, the text seems to say that some problem has been solved that there is a a resolution to to the plot, to the problem. What was the problem that is the resolution of which is described in such words? What was the problem? Since this seems to be the resolution, we have to sort of hear, yes, this was, you know, now, now the problem is solved. What was it? What was the problem? 
Babylon slaughtering God's people. That's good. What else? How long? How long? Yes, how long what? How long will this go on? This sort of <coughs> absence of divine action, it seems like. There is God, you know, not intervening, not, not remedying the, the situation in the world. This is, this is a sort of theodicy problem. What is it? God is loving, but the world doesn't look nice, you know, and God doesn't seem to fix it. You know, now it seems like this problem has been resolved. This is what, what these uh, voices in, the, in heaven are saying. I'd just like to go back then to to uh, another text, uh, and maybe we could have a microphone in someone's hand to read uh, Revelation six, uh, nine, and ten. If anyone of you will uh, volunteer for that. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, "Sovereign Lord, holy and true." How long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? See, what I wish to to bring out here is that the text in Revelation 19 is clearly talking back to a text earlier in the book. Revelation 19 is talking back to Revelation chapter 6, to the question raised by the souls from under the altar and and the the problem that that Harvey was, was mentioning there. So... Let's just align these. Uh, first, I want to just uh, translate these texts uh, myself uh, uh, with a slightly different emphasis than, than you have in the, in the NRSV. <clears throat> in here in uh, Revelation 6.10, How long, holy and true Lord, will it be before you act justly and vindicate us for our blood shed by those who dwell on the earth? Now, the emphasis in the NRSV is that the, the action of God that makes things right is punishment. The action of God that makes things right in my construct here is not so much punishment as vindication. Those who seem to have you know, bought a losing ticket are found to have the winning ticket after all. That's the vindication aspect. And vindication of those people is not necessarily brought about by punishing, that it was the problem was absence of punishment. But even if you want to do the punishment part, it will still work. It will not completely ruin the theological issue here. But I, do you see what I'm, what I'm saying here? Going back to chapter 19, or 1 and 2, verse 2. Uh, for his judgments are true and just. He has judged the ra- great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Clearly, that translation is a translation that thinks in ter- it seems to be thinking in terms of punishment. And then, uh, in this emphasis, then first reading 6.10 and then reading 19.2. For just and true, uh, just and right, for true and righteous are his judgments. For he has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has vindicated the blood of his servants shed by her hand. So that emphasis, and I think the translation is legitimate. Uh, it is not crucial, but I think it, go, it is heading in the right direction. That the issue really is vindication of those who did not. Uh, who, who were trampled upon rather than, rather than just, you know, meeting out punishment. But uh, so here is then uh, doing the how long question. Yes, sorry. 
isn't this a problem that we have today rather than inherent? In other words, uh, I was struck spending time in the Psalms. The, the Psalters are looking forward to judgment. Yes. How many Adventists were looking forward to judgment? That was the time of vindication. Judgment yeah. has been a time, biblically, yeah. Yeah. when the way God runs his world is clarified. We have, I grew up seeing it as punishment. It is not true biblically. No, and when you say, <coughs> you, you use the word clarified, you know, clarified, which means is, is a construct on judgment where judgment, the primary accent of judgment is revelatory. It is not so much punitive only. It's revelatory. It's let, let the facts come out there. You saw that expression. We forgot to, I forgot to comment on it. I didn't see it before we had done the class, uh, finished the class. But in Revelation 18, at the end of Revelation 18, it says, in her was found the blood of saints and prophets. You know, in her was found you know, there is another one of those passive voices, you know, where you don't, you know, somebody was looking and they found something. It seems to, to suggest that text that something had been hidden that was coming up into light. In her was found the blood of these people. Some, you know, all these things that, that did not come to light now have come to light uh, in, in the sort of judgment. So the revelatory aspect of, of judgment is, is here too. In the Gospel of John, in my, when, I, when I teach the Gospel of John, I'm, the Gospel of John is unambiguous. Judgment is revelatory. Revelation is judgment. And not just a judicial act at some sort of the tail end of history, there is judgment. Judgment is, 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 is almost synonymous with revelation there. If our author in the book of Revelation is even remotely related to the author of the Gospel of John. They are on the same page on that thing, the, that judgment and revelation. Or, or, yes. Anyway, so, so let's uh, go on then. So putting those two texts next to each other, so, so we hear them talking to each other. The question then in Revelation chapter 6, in the fifth seal, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? And that's in the NRSV translation. And then Revelation 19. He has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. At least the translation is consistent. You see the way 6 and 19 are aligned here. You can see that they relate to each other. So to our question, how long was it? They asked, "How long?" And what's the sort of uh, what's the sort of temporal perspective here on, on, on this question? Now it is done. Well, how long was it? You know, he has. Now we're looking back. Now we're talking past tense. You know, they are. How long will it be? Future. Now he has judged. You know, there is no no. Uh, uh, now the problem is has been fixed. So how long did it take to do it? How? How should we read this text? How should we hear this, uh, these voices that speak to each other? Well, I'll, uh, and here is the... Uh, well, I don't know how if we can, can do, do this right, but the how long question is an important question, of course. But the how question 
is maybe equally important or even maybe even more important. Just a how question, how did he do it? You know, the how long is a sort of temporal axis. The how question is the sort of method, you know, how did he do it? So here in my translation then you see the other uh, version there is a sort of indication, vindication aspect. But even for the other way of reading it, the how question and the how long question, maybe we should, we should uh, ask them both and, and sort of put them in, 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 in distinct categories. Well, let me try this representation. If you look at the how long question and you construe it as a storyline in time, then they ask the question how long in Revelation 6 and in, in uh, uh, Revelation 19 the job has been done, you know. Then there is no, now it has been, been fixed, it has been done. And the story in between there, Revelations chapter, Revelation 8 to 18, uh, it tells us how it was done. Would that be reasonable to represent it like that? And there is a sort of forward movement in history. So you're seeing events taking place, and finally the job was done. And how many years did it take? Well, it's still taking a few years because it isn't completely over yet, you know, along that temporal axis. Any, any comments here? You see what I'm trying to, to show? The way it's the sort of narration where, where you see a, a timeline uh, unfolding and you see events on a timeline. Now, there is relief here in this. Uh, let's just uh, do this slowly. Uh, keep in mind this timeline and I will try it this way. <clears throat> there is then in Revelation 19, there is relief and joy in the heavenly council. And here are some points that, that I think we could make. The audience in chapters 5 and 19 is the same. No two chapters line up quite as compellingly uh, uh, when it comes to audience as chapter 5 and 19. And that was the surprise when I sat down to, to, to sort of uh, get this out in the, in, in for, t for today's lesson. I did not expect chapter 19 to be so important. I did not expect it to to line up so, so uh, powerfully uh, alongside what is probably the most important chapter in all of the book of Revelation, and that would be chapter 5, even though we have sort of put chapter 12 in there as a very important chapter with its sort of summary of the whole story. There are details in chapter 5 we would really be left high and dry if we didn't have chapter 5 as a, as a very significant point of reference. Now we have chapter 19 coming back to the issues in chapter 5 and reinforcing and clarifying what those issues, what those issues were. So uh, this is what we would like to emphasize with, with you know, seeing these, these alignments. Yeah, there is no, no clearer picture probably in all of Revelation than in chapter 5 where you have the slaughtered lamb as a sort of the ultimate revelatory image for, for what God is up to. Uh, and we return to that in the latter half of chapter 19. You have a reinforcement there in the rider on the white horse that we will have to do when we start after 
start up again in January. So here is the audience, and, and you will be thoroughly convinced that I'm not making up anything here when we have gone over these texts, because it is uh, very clear in the text. So here is another point. The members of the internal audience are themselves re-readers. They know in chapter 5 what we, the non-re-reader, only know in chapter 19. And some of you who have come on board late in this, uh, in this group, uh, uh, we might need to repeat to, uh, to uh, uh, any newcomers the first and most important uh, method in studying the book of Revelation. It is what? That you need to be a re-reader. You need to read it more than once. You need awareness of the whole story in order to make sense of the details. You know, of the, so you, you, because this book is not, uh, let's say that somebody knocks on the door of the book of Revelation and says, I would really like to understand this book. And, and uh, the person who opens the door, he, sa- he says, well, how many times are you willing to read it? And that person says, I'm a very busy person. Uh, and I can only read it once. <laughs> the person who opened the door, he will say that I cannot accept readers like you because I only accept re-readers. You know, I only accept because I cannot disclose my message to any, anyone other than re-readers. Now, what is that point number two here trying to say? The members of the in- internal audience, who is the internal audience? The internal audience is the heavenly council. It is the, 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 the see, in the setting of chapter 5 is in the heavenly council. The setting in chapter 19 is again very explicitly in the heavenly council. They are the internal audience. Let's say that this was a movie, sort of a Hollywood movie. And who got invited to the first showing? I'm so, sorry to disappoint you, but you did not get invited and I'm sorry myself because I didn't get invited either. The people, the, the beings who were invited to the first showing were the heavenly council. You know, it was shown to them first. In some ways, the book of Revelation tells its story as though you and I are not the most important members of the audience. The primary audience is the internal audience, the audience of the heavenly council. And that comes out even more... Uh, comes out quite forcefully here in chapter uh, 19, reinforcing what uh, what the chapters uh, uh, what chapter 5 has been doing. So, what does it mean to be a rereader? One more time, it means to have awareness of the whole story. You know that you are that you have the sense of the whole story, uh, and that is what the internal audience have. Because to be to be truth truthful. They don't say anything in chapter 19 that they didn't already say in chapter 5. It's just re- repeated. It's all just reinforced what they said in chapter, chapter 5. Yeah, uh, shall we try to pass around our mic? <clears throat> well, the 144,000 would, would, in some ways, in, in, in a sense, you could say that the 144,000 is... Is close, it could be related to the, to the heavenly council, but it would seem that, that, that they are not, even they are not as much the primary audience as the, as the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and many angels. 
So, because the 144,000 are the redeemed. So, but maybe would you will would you like to add to say more? That we do. Yeah, that we do. That we have, we have a sort of point of view that begins, that begins at the center and where the, the message or that view of things is sort of spreading from the center around the throne and out toward the whole, the whole created order coming to see that God has done things in a remarkably persuasive uh, way and, 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 uh, and, and won the war. Won the war in a way that has uh, the, uh, with with means that that uh, that persuade persuade uh, all those who are looking in on it. So let's do another another point here. So the admiration and praise in chapter nineteen is a one piece with the admiration and praise in chapter five, and we will see that shortly when we do a, lit- a few more texts here. So here is another way of representing then what is going on. Not so much a a sort of historical sequence, although you cannot take that away. But the way this is narrated, it's narrated as a completed story. Where you are not, where these, where there is a sort of, I, I'm not, sh- I don't know if I want to, can't you imagine stuff <laughs> when I put the arrow? It, it is not just moving in one direction through time because the primary audience is seeing the finished story and seeing how these various things relate to each other. So in Re- it, I'm not saying that Revelation is a story that is running in place. It is a story that has a forward movement. But when you have a sense that this is a story that is presented before an audience as a completed story, we might just listen to it differently. Do you see what I'm, what I'm trying to say there? That the heavenly council is not already in chapter 5 know the complete story and know it no more in chapter 19 than they knew in chapter 5 because they were saying exactly the same things in chapter 5 that they would say in chapter 19. So just... Try to think about it, and then we will uh, uh, move on here. So, if the story is a display, then, then the primary audience, these are, these are by way of summary, the primary audience is the heavenly council. Then, if the story is a display, again, then it is easier to understand the character of the narration. That is moving back and forth, you know, not doing it sequentially and, and so on. Uh, going back over the, over uh, territory again, sort of uh, with the flash forwards and flashbacks, it is easier to understand the character of narration. That is, the internal audience is seeing the finished story; they're seeing seeing the whole thing, and the resolution of the plot is already known to the heavenly council in chapter five. See, those those are the things. So let's read on now, and and one of you take the microphone and read. Uh, 19, uh, 3 and 4. Once more they said, Hallelujah! The smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! Okay, so who are they here in this story? They, and once more they said, same, same group that we saw in the first, previous verse, you know, voices in the heavenly council, voices in heaven. Uh, yes. Uh, 
That's quite nice. That's, that's, that's a good way of representing it. That, that yes, <coughs> the closer you are to the center, the sooner you see the point. I, I rather like that. I think I'm persuaded by that. So out the word goes, you know, to, to finally till the end of, uh, till, till the outermost uh, periphery. Now, the statement, the smoke goes up for her, uh, from her forever and ever. Uh, we could discuss it, but let me just try, uh, try a sort of uh, uh, cut to the chase here. Of course that is not a statement on duration of, of punishment. Of course it isn't. It is the heavenly council seeing that the game is over and it was successfully and persuasively won and it will never happen again. The smoke goes up forever and ever, not in the sense that there is duration, that this is, this is describing you know, how long they will suffer, but it is from the point of view of a finished story that they are saying this. You cannot say hallelujah, the smoke goes up forever and ever, if you are, you know, even, even remotely intact as a, as, a, as, a, as a compassionate being. But you can say that if you are saying that is sort of a metaphor for a finished story, the lesson of which will never go away. You know, that, is, that would, 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 would work. So when you see the audience interaction and you see what is in this story from the point of view of the audience, it seems to me that, that, that much, much of it go, uh, gets clearer. The statement, the 24 elders and the four living creatures, we have hardly seen them since chapter 5. They just disappeared. You know, we didn't know they were there. But they were there all the time. In the trumpet sequence, we didn't hear about them, but they were there all the time. In the, in the bowl, sequ- bowl sequence, they have been the first-hand audience all of this time, and you didn't even know it. You thought you were the main audience, and so did I. You know, I didn't realize that these people eating popcorn on front row were, were the ones that were, were the primary, you know, that they were the primary audience, and I was not hardly supposed to be there. It was not for, you know, as much for us. You see, get the idea. Okay, Revelation 19.5. Who is talking here? And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and all who fear him, great and small. Yeah, it's less important to, to decide precisely who is talking here than to know that it isn't God talking. God is not the one saying it. Someone other than God is saying it. This is praise to God. God, you know, it is not God saying, I would really like you to praise me. It is somebody else saying that God is eminently praiseworthy. So that's enough to say that. But the voice is coming from the throne. So somebody other than God must have sneaked up on the throne. You know, and Revelation does say that there are other, other beings than God on the throne. <coughs> it even places the, the people who are victorious, even somebody taken from the outermost periphery of this story, take, uh, taking a human person and puts us on the throne. And so whoever is talking, is, uh, we need not nail that down except to say that it isn't God saying that. Okay, next person reading six, six through eight. Yeah, so it goes on, similar, falling, uh, uh, sort of covering ground similar to chapter 5. And then, of course, there is the, that comment, uh, uh, this editorial comment, this explanatory n- uh, note about uh, the fine linen there, 
and and that of course is bringing the the redeemed into the into the picture but all of this so far is really seems to be playing out in the heavenly council so here putting these two chapters uh, together so in chapter 19 we have 24 elders and four living creatures but there is nothing new there because we had that in chapter 5 too and we have a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven in chapter 5 we had the voice of many angels and in chapter 19 the voice of a great multitude and in chapter 5 we have every creature in heaven and on earth and under and under the earth and in the sea so you have a, a, an even bigger reference frame in in uh, in revelation 5 it seems to me that in the first 10 verses of revelation 19 we are primarily listening to the the, the perspective of the heavenly council my my hunch that is that it is primarily the the heavenly council that the redeemed are coming into the picture as a bride that has made herself ready you know blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and there is a bride and she has made herself ready and and she is dressed up for the wedding and this is going to be a wonderful party and blessed indeed are those who are invited to the wedding that kind of perspective let's read it wedding invitation and the angel said to me write this blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb and he said to me these are true words of god so there is a uh, an editorial comment uh, or the, the the guiding angel is saying that um, so there is a wedding here that in some ways seems to to be involving the human uh, human dimension in in, in some way uh, we, we might try to pick up on that a little when we when we meet again i'd like to do verse 10 quickly and then i have to run then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your comrades who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, this is a text that has a rich resonance in a, in a Seventh-day Adventist audience, and there are many things you might wish to, to discuss here, but uh, I would just like to make a couple of generic points about this text uh, rather than than just discuss how it has played out in 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 our in our context here is a uh, this person who uh, wrote this uh, in the uh, in the bible translator has written very reputable things on the book of revelation i'm sad to uh, i think he might have just may may have lost his his faith to some extent but he says here that marturia is virtually the personal testimony of Jesus. This is also an attractive explanation of his name, Logos, the word of God, Logos to Theo, in uh, 1913. It's eschatological pericope, pericope means passage, a uh, passage of a Bible text, is not only the watershed of the book, but also the fulfillment of many of the allusions in Jesus' address to the churches. So, the testimony of Jesus. This is the te personal testimony, the witness that Jesus gave, of which he is the subject. That is the important uh, part of it. And here is it from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. The most striking feature in Revelation, listen to that, that's a pretty amazing claim. The most striking feature in Revelation is the phrase 
Hey Martyria Yesu, the testimony of Jesus, or Hey Martyria Yesu Christu, the testimony of Jesus Christ. The genitive is a subjective genitive. In many cases, the logos to theu, the word of God, or entolai to theu, the commandments of God, are closely related uh, to the martyria Yesu. There should be a two there. To the martyria Yesu, so that we have a twofold expression. So, when the movie is over and the image of the commandments of God the word of God lingers, sort of it has been defined on our screen. What do we see? We see the testimony of Jesus. We see Jesus as the defining figure of the entire story. And it is how he has revealed this and brought it forward. So then the combination, continuing the same statement, the combination is not to be construed as referring to the Old Testament on the one hand and the Christian message on the other. We have rather a plerophoric, a multitude or a sort of many-faceted expression for the Christian revelation in general. The word of God and the witness of Jesus Christ are inseparably interwoven. This is from a something as... as Amazing stuff from a, such a dry book as a theological dictionary of all places. You read this. So here is my translation or my, my uh, uh, very uh, loose translation of the, of the 1910. And just sticking to the generic aspects of these verses and not, not discussing it in, in how the sort of reception history that, that this verse has had for, for Adventists. I am, a fellow, uh, I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who are in possession of Jesus' testimony. You don't, it is not only your testimony to Jesus here, it is Jesus' own testimony, how to own that and be in possession of that that is, that is featured here. For Jesus' testimony is the spirit of the prophecy. That is to say, and I'm embellishing here, the testimony that Jesus gave is the sum and substance, the gist and the meaning of the gift of prophecy or the prophetic message of the history of the whole Bible. It was all leading up to that, and it is forever defined by that. That's what the whole story was meant to, to, you know, to be about. It's coming, coming to a head there. Now, we get a final narration of this whole thing one more time to test out all the hypotheses we have made in the latter part of Revelation 19, in the story of the rider on the white horse. And I hope to see you in the new year on January 8th when we resume again. So all the best till then. <laughs>